linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Today's program is a continuation of the series of trialogues held between Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake at Esalen in September of 1989 and again in 1990. So far, the trialoguers, <laughs> I guess that's probably not a real word, but it does have a nice ring, don't you think? <laughs> the trialoguers. Anyway, in the first podcast of this series, the trialoggers gave us a brief glimpse of their backgrounds and how they came together, and that was in our podcast number 58. We then heard tape one of the series, which was titled Creativity and Imagination. Now we move on to the first side of tape two, which is titled Creativity and Chaos, and we begin with Ralph Abraham's short introduction to chaos theory. And then we'll get into a discussion between Ralph and Rupert of why what is, is, or something like that. Let's join Ralph and Rupert now. Now, it's a little presumptuous to call this chaos theory because, as a matter of fact, there is no theory. We're in the exploration phase now, and this is experimental mathematics that we, we are doing with supercomputers. But... Um, I think it, it might uh, help if you had just a little idea of chaotic dynamics and the idea of the thing. So I want to give a two or three minute primer so that you could understand what is a chaotic attractor. And here, now we've seen 16,000 of them. What does one look like? And, uh, and that will conclude my introduction and then I'll pass them on to Rupert. So a good... Uh, laboratory for the study of chaotic dynamics is the dripping faucet. And uh, the dripping faucet was discovered as the ideal demonstrator for chaos theory because the lectures are usually given in a physics uh, lecture hall and they always seem to have a sink with a faucet in the front to do experiments or for the professor to wash the chalk off his hands. Anyway, you take the faucet, you can do this immediately you get home. Uh, you crack the tap a little bit, and the water drips out, drip, 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 and it's regular. If you crack a little more, then the drips speed up, but they're regular. And then you crack it a little more, and then it begins to sound drip, 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 like rain dripping off the roof. That's an example of a chaotic time series. If you measure the time between drops, and make a list of these numbers, you have the uh, paradigmatic case of a chaotic time series. Now, somebody decided to seriously study this dripping faucet after seeing it in half a dozen physics lectures. And this person, Rob Shaw, one of the leading people in chaos theory, did a very fine study by placing a microphone in the sink where the drop would hit it getting an electronic beat, discretizing, getting it in the computer, and analyzing the results. And so all of this is taking place on that level one, the lowest layer of the physical world. Then he made a mathematical model on level three. He went up there, he made a mathematical model for the, the water drop gets bigger and bigger, so it's characterized by a certain mass. When the mass reaches a critical value, the drop falls off. And, from this mathematical model, he then wrote a program, a computer program on level two, 
and ran it and produced data that was exactly like the experimental data from level one. So this is an example showing the, the value of modeling on these three levels for gaining some understanding. There's sort of a hermeneutical circle. You look at the data, try to build a model, you, you fail. But building the model tells you to observe in a different way. You observe in this different way that helps you to build a better model, and as this circle turns, the level of our understanding grows. So Rob Shaw came quickly to a good model for this. I think he was lucky because it sounds simple. It's a very complicated system. It relates to waterfalls, for example, when the spray comes off the waterfall. And here's another example of a chaotic system. Could you write some equations and obtain a computer program that simulated the spray from a waterfall. I doubt it. The new way of looking at the data that came to him from the theory was to take the sequence of numbers, the time between drops. You just visualize a column of numbers. And you make a carbon copy of it and move it over to the side. And then you whack one number off the top and move it all up one number. Now you have a series of pairs. And then you plot these pairs on the plane as a set of points. So he did this. There's a film or video available for Aerial Press that shows the machine actually doing this. And from this totally chaotic data, viewed in this particular way, which is called chaoscopy, you get these points in the planes that if the data was really random, the dots would be all over the plane. Instead, they lie on a curve, a smooth curve. So from the observation of the data in this way, the smoothness of the curve suggests a kind of model that you can actually take off the shelf in the building where the chaos theorists are working and apply it to your data, you see. And the simplest model on the shelf of the chaos theorist closet <coughs> is called the logistic equation. It produces a series of numbers that are apparently random, but actually they comprise one of these simple geometric figures, so this curve, that the data plotted in this special way of the chaoscope is a curve, and that is called the chaotic attractor. So there are models on level three, which are good models for understanding certain behavior on level one. And level two is an intermediary, which can either create the model, the mathematical model from the real data, or create experimental data from the model to compare with laboratory data. Well, to conclude, this video was made out of these simplest possible dynamical systems called the logistic equation. And it just produces a series. It's very similar to a dripping faucet. So you could just as well imagine that we have 16,000 dripping faucets in an array of 128 by 128. And the time between drops is represented as a color on the screen. Now, do you think that if you had 16,000 dripping faucets, you could get out of them a pattern like Calico Mountain? Now, well, it happens. I mean, it's, there's a lot of theory behind this, enough to suggest that it's not some kind of artifact. No matter what kind of artifact it is, it's an interesting artifact. And I guess I'd like to call this a mathematical law. 
It has to do with the emergence of form from a field of chaos. We don't know what else to call it. It's not a mathematical law that was known to Pythagoras. And I don't know if it was always there since the beginning of time, long before the Big Bang, or if it just emerged into the evolving field of the guy in mind through the fact that computers make it visible. I mean, I don't know. But at, at, <laughs> at uh, this point, I have, uh, I hope, arrived at an actual connection between the work I routinely do as a specialist in the field of chaos and the discourse that we're trying to carry on here to increase our understanding of our past, our future, and our possibility of even having a future. The problem I have with chaos theory is that I'm never quite sure what it's saying. There, there seem to me to be two things that are of interest here. One is that the actual detailed models which chaos theoreticians make. And they love finding fairly simple equations that will generate complicated and seemingly chaotic structures. Um, and so th there's this modeling aspect of chaos which is at the forefront of modern mathematical chaos theory and modeling. But the fact you can make mathematical models of chaos has given scientists permission to recognize that, in fact, there's a vast deal of indeterminacy uh, throughout the physical world. In the 19th century, it was generally believed that there was no indeterminacy at all. Everything in the physical world was totally conditioned by eternal laws of nature. Laplace thought that the whole future and past of the universe could be calculated from its present state if there were a mind powerful enough to do the calculations and to make the observations. Um, now, that view, the illusion of total predictability, uh, held science under its spell for generations. Scientists were dazzled by this imagined power of totally predicting everything. And it was a kind of illusion. They really did believe it. Um, and, of course, they couldn't calculate everything. I mean, they couldn't even, they still can't even calculate the weather um, very accurately more than a few days in advance. So... In actual fact, this idea of total predictability was not realizable. But the idea was, well, we would, uh, if we could do enough calculations, be able to calculate it in principle. What seems to me interesting is the fact that first with quantum mechanics, there was a recognition that indeterminacy, probability, um, intrinsic, non-detailed predictability were inherent in small-scale physical processes at the quantum level. And here was a genuine indeterminism in nature which had to be admitted in 1927. Until then, practically everyone believed everything was fully determinate. After that, there's been a gradual recognition that indeterminacy um, exists not just at the quantum level, but at all levels of natural organization. There's an inherent spontaneity, indeterminism, probabil probabilism, uh, in the weather, in the breaking of waves, in turbulent flow, in nervous systems, in living organisms, in biochemical cycles, in a whole range of phenomena. Even the old-time favorite model for total rational mathematical order, namely the orbits of the solar system, the orbits of the planets in the solar system, turn out to be uh, uh, unpredictable in terms of Newtonian physics. They're can be modeled in a chaotic manner. 
Anyway, this indeterminism has been recognized at all levels of nature. So there's the idea that what we can model with old-style physical models is an abstraction from a very small number of idealized cases, that the natural world simply escapes the modeling, most of the modeling processes which were the dominant features of traditional physics. Now, it seems to me this openness of nature, this indeterminism, this spontaneity, this freedom is something very interesting and it corresponds to the intuition of chaos in its intuitive and mythological sense. Mathematicians have used this word chaos in a variety of technical senses and it's not entirely clear to me how these technical models of chaotic systems correspond to the kind of intuitive uh, notion of chaos. But what I want to do is to consider how form arises from chaos starting from a simple, intuitively obvious way in which more form appears from less through familiar physical processes. And I'm thinking of the process of cooling. If you start with something at a very, very high temperature, atoms can't exist. The electrons fly off the nuclei and you get something called a plasma, which is a sort of soup of atomic nuclei and electrons in a kind of gas. There's no longer individual atoms. The whole things they disintegrate into a, a melange, a mixture of their component parts, the plasma, which has its own kinds of properties. If you cool these plasmas down, when you reach a certain temperature, it's low enough for atoms to form, and atoms begin to come into existence. Electrons start circulating around nuclei. You get atoms forming, you get a gas of atoms but the temperature is still too high for any molecules to form and say it's a hydrogen plasma and you cool it down you'll get hydrogen atoms but you won't yet get any hydrogen molecules cool it down further now you get hydrogen molecules you cool the system down further and you get a stage where more complex molecules can come into being but they're still gaseous cool it down further and they turn into a liquid which has more form, can form drops and flow around and has um, quite complex ordered arrays of molecules within it. Cool it further still and you get a crystal, which is an extremely highly, highly regularly ordered formal arrangement of the atoms and the molecules. So you get a progressive increase in complexity of form as you lower the temperature. And in traditional kinetic theory, lowering temperature means less... Um, random kinetic motion of the particles. So you're getting a, a cooling down um, and a, an increase in complexity of form as the cooling process takes place. Now, we all know from the cooling of steam into water, the cooling of water into ice, that um, this, we know about this process from everyday experience. We've seen this aspect of it, and we've seen how if you cool water vapor down, you get ice crystals emerging, and these ice crystals have a considerably high degree of order. So there's this formative process which we see through cooling occurs as the thermal chaos in the ordinary sort of everyday sense of chaos is reduced because as cooling happens, more form emerges. 
the opposite happens if you warm things up. If you warm up snowflakes, they first turn into water, then they turn into steam, then the steam, the water vapor, disintegrates into the molecules break up into atoms, then those break up into uh, a plasma as you raise the temperature. So there seems to be an inverse relationship between temperature, which is this highly agitated motion of things, essentially chaotic in the traditional theory of gases and plasmas, and um, <clears throat> an increase of form when things cool down. Now, in a sense, that's what happened, has happened according in the entire universe. We're led to believe that the universe started off exceedingly hot, billions of billions of degrees centigrade, so hot that stable forms were not able to emerge. By expanding, <coughs> it cooled down. The, the cooling process of the universe is associated with expansion. The cosmic expansion both creates more space in which new forms can appear, and by making bigger gaps between things, somehow cools the universe down, so the temperature drops. And as the temperature drops in the developing universe, according to standard models, more and more form comes into being. First you get uh, atoms, then stars and galaxies condense, then you get solar systems, and through the cooling of matter you can get planets. These planets are the cooled remnants of exploding stars. The elements in us and in our planets are stardust formed from supernovae. So this, the, there's a cooling down of these things that came from immensely hot sources. Then you can get rocks forming crystals. And um, in a sufficiently cool planet, and yet a sufficiently warm one, within a fairly narrow range of temperature, uh, you can have the evolution of life as we have had on Earth. So this appearance of forms <coughs> comes out of a, an initial state where these forms are not present, and they appear through a kind of cooling. There's a formative process going on. And we can call this one way of looking at the emergence of form from chaos or disorder. Well, how do these forms come into being? This is the big problem of evolutionary creativity. How do the first molecules, how did the first zinc atoms come into being? How did the first methane molecules, how did the first salt crystals, <clears throat> how did the first living cells, how did the first vertebrates, how did the first of anything come into being in this evolving universe as it expanded and cooled? Well, <clears throat> one way of looking at this is to see the expansion and cooling process and indeed the flow of events as being, thinking of it in terms of the flux, flux of energy. And one of the great unifying concepts of 19th century physics is a unified conception of energy. Now, it's not entirely clear what energy is. Energy, in some sense, is the principle of change. The more there is, the more change that can be brought about. It's, in a, in a sense, a causative principle. Um, and it's a causative principle which exists in a process. In this process, the energetic flux of the universe underlies time, change, becoming, and uh, the, the flux process itself seems to have an inherent indeterminism to it. This flux process, the universal flux, is organized into forms by fields. Matter is now thought of as energy bound within fields, the quantum matter fields and the fields of molecules and so on. And I think there are many of these organizing fields, the morphic fields. And uh, the fields are somehow organizing the ongoing flux of energy, which is always associated with this spontaneity and 
chaotic qualities. So even organized systems of a high level of complexity still have this probabilistic quality, the fields that organize this energy to give rise to material and physical forms. Um, are themselves probabilistic. Chaos is never eliminated. There's always this indeterminism or spontaneity at all levels of organization. So there's a formative principle, which is the fields, and there's an energetic principle, um, which I think has the chaos inherent in it. It's a kind of change, which left as pure change would be chaos. One way of thinking of these is in terms of the Indian notion of, sh of Shakti as the energy indeterminate principle and Shiva as the formative principle working together in a kind of tantric union to give the world that we know. Now, <clears throat> if there's this formative principle that comes through the fields of nature, then one of the questions is, how do fields operate? How are these fields governed? How do they have the forms, shapes, and properties they do? Well, I think that the, the organizing fields of uh, living organisms, of crystals, of molecules, and so on, uh, organized by, uh, I think that they are what I call morphic fields, and that these fields contain an inherent memory, so that um, these fields are essentially habitual, and nature is the uh, theater of these habitual fields organizing the indeterminate flux of energy, the fields themselves, by having this energy within them, have this indeterminate quality too. But this then brings us to the question of creativity. How do new fields, new forms, come into being in the first place? Where do they come from? Well, this morning, um, with Terence, I was discussing how they may arise out of the interaction between chaos and some kind of formative, unifying, some kind of unifying aspect of the cosmic mind um, which uh, Ralph has hijacked for the Pythagorean sect by calling the realm of mathematics um, that there's a, a, an interaction here between these two levels giving the world of becoming that he's shown by the wiggly line in the middle well this is one way of looking at it and this brings us back to the question of the nature of what he calls the mathematical realm, this sort of formative realm. Um, is, it, is there a kind of mathematical realm before the universe, somehow beyond space and time altogether, which conditions all forms of creativity, all patterns and possible uh, systems of organization that come into, can come into being with the world? Or are these all made up as the evolutionary process goes along? These are questions we've already touched on this morning. <clears throat> I, myth I myself think that um, if we take the view of things coming into being as evolution goes along, if we think of the cosmic, uh, the soul of the world as having a kind of imagination, uh, we can think of these as coming into being as nature goes along, and we can see this imagination as having many levels. There'd be a kind of cosmic imagination uh, which would be the soul of the world, the anima mundi, the soul of the universe, um, a cosmic mind, soul, and imagination. Within that, there would be clusters of galaxies, each of which would have their own mind, soul, or imagination. Then there would be galactic ones, then ones for solar systems, then ones for planets, then ones for ecosystems, then ones for societies of organisms and individual organisms, organs, tissues, and so on. Um, 
there'd be many levels of um, organizing soul. I think these morphic fields could be regarded as an aspect of the souls of systems at different levels of being. Um, then there'd be the possibility of a whole range of imaginations that uh, we don't have to leap straight from what's happening in a social insect uh, colony um, or in an, in an animal or a plant or in a social system, a human social system, straight to the <coughs> divine imagination or the mathematical mind of God or the transcendent realm of mathematics. There's a whole level of imaginations in between, a whole level, um, and within the earth, we're embedded within the solar system with its own particular kind of soul and imagination, and that within the galaxy. So there'd be a whole set of levels uh, at which creativity could come forth from uh, souls with imaginations. Now, <clears throat> I think the difference that we might have to consider between all this and the traditional doctrine of the world soul um, is that in the traditional doctrine of the world soul, of Plotinus and of Plato, um, they had a threefold system where there was the intellect, with the intelligence, uh, which was really the realm of forms or ideas or the logos. And embedded within that was the world soul, which had as its characteristic an attractor. It, the world soul had space and time within it and was concerned with the realm of becoming, namely the cosmos, not with the realm of being, which was the realm of these pure forms. And as the prototype of the cosmos, the world soul had this cosmic attractor as its entelechy, its goal. Um, and this was a striving towards the eternal perfection of the divine. And then within the world soul, there were hosts, hierarchical levels within levels of souls of all the different systems within the universe, um, each of which had its own autonomous existence. Um, a, a holistic or holarchic uh, vision of souls within souls. The view that they had was that the qualities of the world soul were all fixed in, by the eternal forms, the eternal mathematical mind. The view that I want to consider is that the world soul or the world imagination makes up these forms as it goes along, that there isn't out there a kind of mathematical mind already fixed, already full, that the, what we do is make mathematical models of various aspects of nature. And um, I think that the one, way, one thing that happens then is these models can be projected as if they're uh, a real thing out there, as if the world soul is engulfed within a kind of eternal mathematical mind. That may just be a projection of ours. The world soul may have an autonomy. It may be no more mathematical than our own souls are when we're dreaming. I mean, there are certain numbers and numerical forms come into dreams, but there's no sense when we're dreaming that these dreams are being generated by equations or that there's, they're essentially mathematical in structure. So... <sighs> What I'm suggesting is that the, the world soul may have an autonomy to it. It may have a kind of mathematical realm as part of it. Um, but that if we think of it as having its relation to mathematics and its relation to the creation of form, the ordering of chaos into patterns and forms and structures, then um, this mathematical aspect of it may evolve along with nature, just as our own understanding of mathematics evolves in time. Well, I think that um, we are talking about uh, complicated thing, complex, obtuse, and, 
and uh, difficult ideas, and we're um, talking about them in a language which seems more or less appropriate. So as you speak, I get an idea, I get a picture. I mean, for me, it's frequently a picture. And I, I don't see that mathematics is substantially different from verbal description as a strategy for making models. I mean, um, certainly, if you uh, talk about uh, Plotinus, for example, we have a really, uh, you described a geometric, a visualizable model for the all and everything, including within it uh, the world soul and so on. If we <clears throat> draw that as a picture instead of a word picture, then that's officially mathematics. That's geometry. That's a geometric model for the thing. I think that with mathematics, we can make model for anything. And if um, you think there's a big bang, we can make a model for that. And if you think that there are, are three sexes on the moon, and then we can make a model for that, you see. So mathematics could be regarded as simply an extension of language. It's not that uh, mathematical laws describe the universe. I mean, it's true that that's uh, the old paradigm. But I'm thinking um, that mathematics is a particularly good language for describing, discussing, imagining things that are really complicated. And the more complex, the more structured, the more difficult to engulf in our minds, the more appropriate mathematics might be, or maybe music might be. But words, I think, are frequently inadequate, that they have uh, evolved, our language has evolved through the necessity of sharing our experience on a level of complexity which is more or less traditional and which is inadequate to understand the whole world or the world soul or the ecosystem, the biosphere of planet Earth or something. So mathematics has only a little more magic than, than language. And we could say, well, the conservation of energy, that's a verbal description of something that you could also say mathematically. So I, I think that you're uh, maligning mathematics in this way is unjustified. And I, I guess I've been quoted in the chaos book as saying that chaos theory is the biggest thing since the wheel. Well, I believe that. I also think the wheel was a really big thing. But on the other hand, I've been quoted as saying that uh, chaos theory is no big deal. So whatever you say, I agree with you. <laughs> but... Um, I mean, about determinism, if I could reply to that, it's a long time ago, but that was, you said you had a complaint about chaos theory, about determinism and prediction. And um, there are two or three reasons why chaos theory is good for you. Uh, one thing is if you accepted chaos theory as a way of modeling anything that we're interested in, which personally I don't, uh, not by itself, it's too simple then um, it's still good for you because according to chaos theory, prediction and determinism are impossible. Even though it uses the language that the deterministic thinkers used, it, when you look into the technical details of it, prediction is impossible. You only get a sort of a probabilistic something or other. Secondly, the models for anything that you want to talk about, such as cooling is a good one, 
um, they don't come from chaos theory, they come from bifurcation theory. And that is really good for you, because bifurcation theory is, exemplifies the best in mathematics. The most it can possibly do for you is rule out a lot of possibilities that you might imagine might happen, and then the mathematics says, well, no, in the, according to the assumptions that you said you believe, then all this won't happen, only this. And then you get a list of three or four of these so-called bifurcations. They're the only things you're going to expect to see in any system which is well modeled by the theory where these models come from. So when you have cooling, then you have, let us say, a control knob where you're turning down the heat under the pan, and the boiling is gradually subsiding to simmering, which is subsiding to a little bit of waving, which is subsiding to nothing. Then we have, at each stage, coming from the mathematics, a model which has attractors, which has maybe chaotic attractors. But every time you change the knob, you get a different model. And therefore, if you can't predict how the knob is going to change. The models don't give any prediction at all, and, and the, the, they're irrelevant. And the only interesting thing is that the theory can tell you certain transformations you'll expect and others not. For example, Terence had pointed to the punctual aspect of evolution, that many transformations are saltatory, they're catastrophic, they are abrupt. And here the theory comes in and say, in models of this type in this theory, most of the transformations are abrupt, and they have kind of a theory why, which is a geometrical model, which is only of use to those people who are, who are thinking of the structure of the theory as opposed to what is happening in the ordinary world. So this bifurcation theory is good for you, and it gets rid of all, if chaos theory wasn't enough, that says determinism is impossible, using mathematical models, forget it. Then we don't even think the, those models are appropriate anyway. Instead, you have these models that are changed by a parameter which uh, experience bifurcations. We have a very good encyclopedia of bifurcations, and those are good models for sudden changes, as, for example, in the emergence of form, as, for example, in the Neolithic Revolution, as, for example, in the crystallization of the planets, of the stardust. So. That's uh, the, the good news, but the truth is that this theory can be used to model everything so it never settles any question as to the origin of things or the true nature of the ordinary reality, and therefore it's worthless. What's good about it, like language, is it's good for communication, it's good for a certain feeling of understanding and gaining comfort in a new environment because modeling is part of our basic process of grokking. And always the models are no good. They're no good as models, but they're good for the growth of understanding, the evolution of understanding. <clears throat> well, I mean, you put the whole case uh, impressively and modestly in the sense that you're claiming that mathematicians are making models, here's a new range of models. I mean, it's, it's like before there were only mechanical instruments, and now we've got electronic instruments. A whole new category of models have come onto the market. And we can look forward to more models in the future, and, and there'll be the latest, the 1990 model will soon be out. And, um, 
we've got this ongoing evolutionary system of mathematical models which enable us to model various aspects of reality. This seems to me eminently modest claim. Um, but I suspect there's more in the background because the, at least there is for some people because the traditional assumption is that these models correspond to something. The reason why they work is because there's some aspect of nature to which they mysteriously relate. And that aspect of nature is, in essence, mathematical, which is why mathematical modeling is possible. Now, this seems to me the interesting question. Why mathematical models work in certain areas? There are large areas where they don't work and they aren't used. And maybe they could be used and they could work. But, I mean, I'm often meeting mathematicians or physicists who say quantum physics is the most brilliant predictive system that mankind has ever known. It predicts things to the 25 places of decimals, and uh, it's obviously correct. Well, as an agricultural scientist when I was working in India, you know, pre predicting the outcomes of my crop experiments, uh, there was nobody who could predict those. And those, those experiments were, I mean, vast distance beyond the capabilities of any physical, quantum physical modeling process or anything based on the so-called fundamental principles of physics. Um, you can produce sort of string and sealing wax models for, for crop production, and we had people doing that. We had a computer, and there were these uh, simple models. Um, but it wasn't that they didn't seem to me to be pointing towards a convincing demonstration that the whole thing depended on a hidden mathematical order. It, there were phenomena going on. The, some of them mathematicians have modeled fairly well. Others, there's huge areas of reality that are hardly modeled at all yet. Um, but the question is, is, there a, is it that mathematical models somehow fix on features of the fields of reality? Are the fields of reality more real than the models we use to model them with? Or is there a kind of mathematics yet more fundamental than the fields? Is the electromagnetic field, the magnetic field, for example, the north and south poles of the magnet, is that field polar? In the sense it has a north pole and a south pole. It has, clearly has a polarity. And is the electromagnetic field polar uh, in, in electric charge as well? There's a positive and there's a negative charges. These polarities we find inherent, for example, in the electrical and magnetic fields, are those because there's some kind of Pythagorean two system or duality in some archetypal realm beyond nature that's reflected in everything that happens in nature? Or is that just the way fields are? And that when we look at lots of fields, we make an abstraction and we make conscious in a mathematical model something which is inherent in the nature of the organizing fields of reality, but which doesn't exist in some transcendent mathematical realm. Well, you could ask different mathematicians and get different answers. I'll give you mine. Mm -hmm. And um, other mathematicians would say, it doesn't count because I'm not a mathematician. And this, uh, <laughs> this answer, in fact, is the proof of that. But I think that, um, for me, mathematics is a beautiful landscape, an alternate reality. And there's um, infinite possibilities not yet uh, loomed into view, not seen. But I suppose they exist. It's just a fantasy. And there may be other parts which don't exist, but they'll be created by the efforts of people such as myself who just go there all the time. and. Uh, hang out there and study there and give it energy, which is the nutrition and so on. So there is some older part and some, some younger part in the mathematical landscape. 
and this uh, entire system is in co-evolution, I suppose, with the evolution in ordinary reality. In this mathematical landscape, there is only small parts which have been used and probably ever will be used for modeling anything in ordinary reality. From the viewpoint of any non-mathematician, which is almost everyone, then those pieces of mathematics that have been used by somebody for modeling something familiar, like the simmering in the bottom of the, in, in the boiling water, those parts are the only parts of mathematics that are visible. So then they proclaim how amazing the perfect fit between the mathematical concept evolved solely in the context of the human mind and this boiling pot of water. How amazing. Uh, something real, something only in the mind, the resonance, you see, but it's just like some small parts of mathematics that have ever become visible in that way. Furthermore, they became visible primarily in the context of mathematical physics. And mathematical physics, I guess, is unfortunately an evolutionary dead end. So you have to carefully watch out to take any inspiration from it, especially something like quantum electrodynamics. You have... Uh, a really good one, you know, mathematical physicist such as Stephen Hawking's going on record in several of his books saying that theoretical physics is done. Everything we can figure out is figured out now. And other theoretical physicists would like to say, I'm sure that, you know, we'll progress a little further. But basically, although Hawking is probably wrong, in essence, he's kind of right. Because this whole subject is devoted to the study of the simplest possible systems. Now, when you talk about your experience as agricultural scientist and so on, there you are talking of experience in a realm which is infinitely more complicated than the most complex system that a physicist ever looked at. So the parts of mathematics that have been used by these physicists are the parts that are the least interesting to us. And I want to tell you this good news that, at least in my opinion, mathematics offers much more to the more complex sciences than it offers to physics. And the whole potential of mathematics to aid us in our own evolution comes from the fact that it can extend our understanding of systems that are too complex to understand without it. It might be good for that, you see. Yeah. So that when you just change the weather a little bit and these peas grow at the expense of those and so on, the understanding of that complexity could be aided. I mean, in any ecosystem, you have so many different things. You talk about the butterfly effect, and uh, we don't know that uh, one oil spill off the coast here could produce desertification and bring on the equivalent of nuclear winter. This is possible, but we don't understand it, and we never will, but our understanding can be advanced by mathematics, because mm -hmm. mathematics is the supreme tool for the extension of our language for dealing with complex systems. That's its main appeal for application, for ordinary use, for garden variety life. We can have models of emotional relationships, of love affairs, of arms race between nations, of the nuclear club, of the United Nations, of the society of people, of nations, of the society of species, and, and so on. We can model these things with models that are no good, but they're better than no models. And the construction of these models is part of our evolution and is part of the evolution of the mathematical landscape as well.
Yes. Well, that's all very moderate and reasonable. <laughs> no extravagant platonic claims. Um, uh, what interests me, I must admit that my interest in mathematical models has enormously increased since I came across attractors. And my ability to understand attractors, or at least even a little bit about them, was greatly increased by your visual dynamics books, which for the first time made these things uh, visible. I should say, for those who haven't followed Ralph's work, that he's done more than any mathematician I know to make the essential features of this mathematics visible. He's produced a four, volume, uh, four volumes of books on dynamics, visual dynamics. There's not a single equation in the four volumes. And through diagrams, he tries to give you the essence of what dynamic systems are and what the science of the mathematical branch of dynamics is, how it models them and how it understands them. It's very illuminating. And normally, mathematics is hidden between, behind an opaque cloud of symbols, which most of us can't penetrate beyond. It's as if all we knew of music was looking at scores of symphonies, but never actually hearing the symphony. These symbols refer to things which, for real mathematicians, are intuitions, visual intuitions. And uh, so Ralph helps uh, make that clear. But what interests me is, in, the, in these attractors, um, no one else in any other branch of science has been able to think in terms of teleological principles which pull from in front. And mathematicians have sort of snuck in round the back and because it's an abstruse branch of an abstruse subject, uh, which the, the anti-teleological inquisitions of modern science don't really understand very much, it's somehow grown up in the back uh, without anyone noticing. And now we've got this whole system of dynamical attractors, including chaotic attractors, um, that have been developing for years without uh, those who police the frontiers of science noticing what was going on, sort of illicit crops of models have grown up in clearings and backyards, as it were. Um, and it seems to me that they've really quite changed our way of thinking about nature because they have made it conceivable to think of what Aristotle called the entelechy or what uh, the, this dynamical, this pulling process. Now, what I'd like to know is, is how you think um, attractors work. I mean, I know you'll say that all we're doing is modeling what actually happens. We're not saying anything about the underlying reality or fields or structures that make it happen. We're just describing or modeling what actually happens in the physical world. Um, the interesting thing is the models of attractors imply that a future state draws the system towards it. And I suppose you can say, well, the model isn't in the future or the state isn't really in the future. It's only a description of what you've observed in the past. Can you believe that I'm going to leave this discussion hanging in midair like this? <laughs> well, I wish we had time to go on today, but I've got to get back to my never-ending project of working on a new and improved version of the Psychedelic Salon's website. And if I don't spend a few hours every day working on it, I'm never going to get it done. But what I'll do to try to make up for it a little bit is to post the second half of this tape early next week before I post another non-trialogue program. That way, we'll at least get both sides of each tape in back-to-back -back podcasts. A few programs ago, I mentioned a fellow podcaster, KMO, who podcasts on the Sea Realm channel. That stands for Consciousness Realm, I'm told. 
Well, he called me the other day to ask me to pass along his thanks to all of you who have checked out his podcast. Apparently, some of us saloners are finding his programs interesting as well. I guess I should give full disclosure here, because part of his 10th podcast includes an interview with me. My first podcast interview, by the way. One of the things I noticed about KMO's website, which can be found at crealmpodcast.podomatic.com, that's c-r-e-a-l-m-p-o-d-c-a-s-t dot podomatic dot com, and the link's on the Psychedelic Salon's podcast page if you didn't catch all of that. Anyway, uh, KMO has done a really great job of providing extended program notes where you can find links to some of the things that we talked about. And uh, you might want to check it out if you have the time. And now that I've heard a live podcast slash phone interview, I've decided to try one myself. And so the uh, podcast after the next one will include a phone conversation between me and my friend, the great Sheldoni, otherwise known as Sheldon Norberg, author of the groundbreaking book, Confessions of a Dope Dealer. So if you've ever wondered about the dope dealing business, you might find that upcoming program of interest. And I guess I should put in a special note here to my friends. I'm assuming you're my friends in the DEA and other fascist enterprises who are monitoring these podcasts in a pretense of doing some investigative work. Sheldon has been out of the dope dealing business for a long time now. Long enough for all the statute of limitations to run, for sure. And you won't hear any tips on how to get started in the business either. But you will hear a fascinating story of how the war on drugs helped to spawn an entire new class of entrepreneurs, in junior high school no less. (laughs) And if you don't want to wait until next week to hear Sheldon's story, you can always go to our Amazon store at matrixmasters.com and you'll find his book at the top of the page. Before I go, I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at matrixmasters.com slash podcast. And if you still have questions, you can send them an email to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. I'd like to uh, thank Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And thanks again to Ralph Abraham, both for participating in the trialogues and for letting Bruce Damer and me digitize your tapes of these sessions and put them online for our friends here in the Psychedelic Salon to enjoy. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>